Welcome everyone to another episode of the Immigrant's Journey podcast. Today, I am delighted to have with us Alex Oliveira, entrepreneur, conference speaker, and lecturer, and founder of Predic, a digital marketing consultancy firm. Today, we're going to be speaking with Alex about his journey from Brazil to the U.S. and how being a lifelong learner has brought him the success and opportunities to build his successful firm. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Carmen. I'm happy to be here. Delighted to have you. So I always ask my guests about their background. Um, you are from Brazil. What brought you and your family from South America to North America? Yeah, like most immigrants, it's for a better life. You know, my parents and their humble beginnings started in Northeast Brazil. And when I was a kid, we went to the South for a bigger city, better opportunities. Sao Paulo, certainly city of 12 million people, even then um, had a big population. So it was a great opportunity to grow, um, but they found it challenging there as well. And so when we had the opportunity to come to the U.S. in 1988, they took that opportunity and, and we came. That's amazing. That's exactly the year my family went to um, Chicago in 1988. Wow. Okay. And uh, from chatting with you earlier, we were close in ages as well. I was seven, you were 10 when our there families you go. emigrated. That's really interesting. And going from Brazil to America, did you have any English? What was it like your first few years there? I had no English. My mom, my dad, my sister, no English. So when we came, we we had this expectation that it, it would take a long time to learn the language. But when you're little like that, my sister was 13, three years older. Um, within six months, we weren't fluent, but fluent enough to get around. And we were lucky that in South Florida, they catered to the immigrant population. So the ESOL programs were very robust. The teachers spoke. We had no Portuguese speaking teachers, but we had Spanish speaking spe Same. teachers. Right. Which we we get along. We're like, hey, I can understand half of what you're saying. Um, but they were even the English only teachers. They were very patient at this school in Derry Beach, Florida. It was a very much an immigrant community. Um, you know, kids from in my class from Haiti, from Hungary, from, you know, Russia, from all over South America. And that's what it was. Right. It was like. 30 kids in a classroom we were all from different countries. None of us spoke each other's languages. I think I had two kids in my class that were still my friends today. They're from Brazil too. But other than that, we were all learning together. And so we didn't have the language and that was tough for my parents. Not so much for me and my sister as we were like, this is exciting. We're making new friends. We're, we're in this new country where to us, the most exciting thing, by the way, was that there was a pool in our community. It's like, hey, you know, when you're little, that's all you think about. It's like, hey, there's going to be a pool. This is awesome. I get to go on a bus to school. What's this all about? And so that that was exciting as a kid. You know, it's not until later years when you're an adult that you understand, wow, my parents, like, I don't say sheltered me from a lot of those things, but, you know, they do what parents do. You know, they, they've got the weight on their back and they just want to give you the best life. And, and even though we were poor and we're immigrants, we had nothing, we were super happy. I mean, I thought I was, you know, 
living the life. And they were giving us the life. I mean, they were giving us love, which was the most important thing, you know? Yeah, that really is the most important thing. I wonder how kids would have a similar experience to us today with like Instagram. Because, you know, like you said, like you're poor, but happy. It was the same like in my family. We were poor as well, but we didn't really consider the material things. But we didn't have points of comparison through social media the way that young people do now. I'm just curious as to if young people would have the same kind of experience that we did, where you're just kind of living in the moment, enjoying the bus rides to school, enjoying the pool in the neighborhood, that kind of stuff. Did you ever find that you had any difficulty integrating into American culture or were your friends more predominantly immigrants? My friends were predominantly um, immigrants. And so um, we shared that, right? And early on, I can, you know, like probably most kids can tell you, even if you're American, it doesn't, you don't have to be an immigrant to be bullied. You could be anyone. There are mean kids everywhere and every, you know, country and all times in history. But I do remember that a lot of times the um, American kids, you know, looking down at us, right. Making fun and things like that. And that's just because you're being kids. It's not because they're Americans. It just, it wasn't until we integrated to your point into the culture and didn't have that like heavy accent, um, didn't dress different. You know, it wasn't until then that you feel like a little bit more accepted. So, but then at some point you feel like, okay, now I'm more Americanized. And then, so you're in my case, like my Latino or immigrant friends are, they're not as accepting of you. Cause you know, because I always saw everyone the same. Like I, I like to be friends with everyone. I was always friends with the, the nerdy group, the, the, the cool kids, the, the everything to me, I just didn't see that. And some of my friends did see that and they'd be like, Hey, why are you hanging out with those kids? And I'm like, Hey, they're, they're my friend. Right. Um, so, but I never worried about that, but I definitely can say, until I was able to speak the language and understand the culture. Um, like for me, I came here loving soccer. So soccer, soccer, soccer. Meanwhile, a lot of the kids were like, Hey, baseball, basketball, football. I didn't understand football. Um, so I felt that pressure of like, okay, how do I integrate? I'm going to start collecting basketball cards and I'm going to do this. And you, you start trying to play a part, you know? Um, and so it, it definitely, it was confusing, you know, especially in the teen years. I think all everyone in history can attest to teen years being the toughest time. Your hormones, your all, all that stuff is happening. And it's like, wow, you know, um, so am I too Americanized? Am I not? And then when I go back to visit my family in Brazil, there's that too, right? Like, hey, now you have an accent in Portuguese. So, you know, you're too Americanized. It's like, wait a minute, am I not accepted anywhere? What the heck, yeah. man? Yeah, I think that's something that immigrants feel everywhere. Because like when I talk to my family in America, oh my goodness, you sound so Irish. And then my Irish friend's like, oh, you sound so American. And then, you know, family from Brazil is like, I don't know what you sound like. <laughs> I like to say I have a cosmopolitan accent. <laughs> right. <laughs> from everywhere, but nowhere really. Uh, that is so true. When you were going to school there, when did the entrepreneurial bug bite you? When did you know that you wanted to do something for yourself? Or did you, what yeah. was your vision as a kid of what your future was going to be? 
That's, that's a great question. I mean, for me, it was absolutely when I'm 11, I get a job. I'll share the picture with you later. Still have it. My first job was as a bus boy, which you would never be able to do that today at 11. The, the guy who owned the restaurant, Tony was friends with my dad. So he said, I'm, I'm telling Tony, I said, Hey, I want to buy a bike and I want to save up. He says, well, why don't you come do some work at the restaurant? I said, yeah, sure. So I start looking at Tony and he's got this restaurant. I'm helping him do dishes and all kinds of stuff. Next thing you know, I'm in like a tuxedo shirt and I'm, you know, going out there helping the waiters and I'm making, I think it was two, three bucks an hour, whatever it was then and tips, which to me was huge. Right. I mean, you're talking 1990 and, um, and I just start to see that whole entrepreneurial sort of ecosystem of like the guys that work with Tony, the the vendors. And it's very interesting to me. And I'm like, wow. And my parents were working just odd jobs like most immigrants, right? They're doing construction, cleaning, you name it, all that stuff. And I'd go help them. And very early on in our journey here in the U.S., they were sort of, they set their mind to, hey, you know what? We, we came from like professions in Brazil and now we're working these types of jobs here. And I think, you know, if you ask them, they would say, yeah, they were embarrassed. You know, I wasn't embarrassed. I didn't know any different, um, but I get why they were embarrassed then because people didn't treat them right because you're just a servant. And I suppose that could happen to you, even if you're not an immigrant, if you're in that lower socioeconomic, you know, um, 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 place in life. So that's just how, some people are right. And, and they just wanted to get out of that. And the way they did that was by saying, Hey, why don't we create a business? And for them, it was, let's go sell t-shirts at the flea market. So my mom's going to like Joann's and buying t-shirts and painting it, painting it with this paint called puffy paint. And if I could just fast forward that for you, that flea market business, that was a you sell $500 a day at the flea market on a good day, turned into a multi-million dollar company five years later. It went from just the family all helping and being at the flea market to, you know, a 5,000 square foot warehouse with 40 employees selling clothing all over the United States and abroad. So it's just funny because that wasn't their intention. Their thing was just like, hey, we just want to have a better um, work better working conditions and make more money. And that's what they were thinking. They weren't thinking they had no entrepreneurial background. A lot of people in my family did had businesses. They were never building sustainable businesses. So for my dad, that wasn't very attractive because he was like a company guy. Uh, you know, he, he was a welder, but a good one. And so for him, it was like, I'm working doing sales at the flea market now, and I'm going to these craft shows. And so between my experience at the restaurant and working at the flea market with the parents, I'm, I'm just seeing all this commerce. And they were always open with me about the money and how this is what you buy, right? This is how you sell it. You got to make a profit, supply, demand. And I'm really saying in my early teen years, I was exposed to that. And the reason why I was, was because they didn't speak English. So they sort of, I mean, I'm telling you, I can remember a thousand memories of being at the flea market in a booth at 12, 13, 14 years old with my dad and translating. If a lady's, let's say, trying to buy three, four shirts and make a deal, I'm like, dad, she's saying, you know, she wants to make a deal. And he's saying, no, well, I'll give her a $3 discount. Or maybe if she buys a hat or this or that. And it was just 
it was such a great experience. I mean, it was like I was a full-time translator and salesperson and entrepreneur, and I was the muscle helping him put all the stuff in and out. So it was a great experience, but that's really where my mind starts to go like, wow, yes, I want to do school. I want to continue in school, but it, it, it never left me from that point on. That's really an amazing education. It's like you were an intern in your parents' business, but at actually able to do and see everything because of the linguistic barrier, which kind of turned out to be a blessing for you in a way. Not your linguistic barrier, I mean your parents. Yes, for sure. That's really amazing. So you ended up going into marketing. Where did the appeal in that come from? Yeah, I mean, definitely it, marketing for me was always, I, I always saw that as sort of the vehicle to grow the business. Because early on, I always equated in those years that my parents were growing the business. I really thought sales, not marketing. I thought sales, sales is marketing. I didn't understand it, right? I'm in high school. I didn't understand it, but I got it. But to me, it was all, always sales. And that's what I was good at. Selling people, schmoozing them, right? Building rapport and mirroring them and saying the right things, asking the right questions, having the right answers. And so for me, it was always sales, sales, sales. I never thought of myself early on as an entrepreneur, right? Even though that's what I was, but I didn't think of it that way. I just thought of, I'm good at sales. And, um, and then the marketing thing was just little by little, especially when the internet blows up, right? In 2000, at 99 to 2000, I'm in Orlando going to school there. I start to see like the growth and I start to dabble online, buy and sell domains. This is early on internet, right at the bust. I'm, I'm losing money. I'm making money. I'm losing money. And I'm like, uh Oh, I'm going down that path that I saw many uncles and people go, which is you start businesses, you make some money, then, then you lose it all. And I'm like, I was really afraid. I was like, do I want to be an entrepreneur? Because I've seen so many people fail. The thing was, I was never afraid of failure or risk. So that worked in my favor. I was like, no, yeah, I, I like this. I'm good. I do sales. I'm a hustler. I get on the road. I go, right. My parents came here. I got to, I got to do big things. So, um, you know, from 2000 through about 2009, I had several companies, some that did very well, uh, grew to multi-million dollar businesses. And then some that went bust right in the 2008 crisis, right. Cause I was over leveraged. I was, you know, just growing, 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 growing. And if you ask me what in those companies that I um, started, what the success came from, it was marketing, but I didn't understand that it was marketing, but I understood how to reach people who the target audience was, have the right message, great customer service. I always just sort of viewed it as all this sales it was like customer service marketing, but I always thought it's just sales and I got to do really good by people. Never thought of it as like marketing. And it wasn't until 2009 where I left that business that I had a chance to think, what do I want to do next? What's my next thing? Cause I've, I've done some really awesome things here, but now I'm at the bottom again, you know, and I'm at the bottom because I took big risks. I didn't have kids then. It was just me and my wife. And, um, I'm a bigger, bigger risk taker than she is. So if it, if it were up to her, probably we wouldn't have gone down as deep as we did, but she trusted me and we were in it together. You know, she was in the business with me. So I went out and I did 
some consulting for two years. So it's like, you know what? I've been doing my own thing for a long time. I'd like to see what it works, like how it works to be in corporate America. So I went and worked for a subsidiary of Home Depot and a couple of other insurance companies. And I was like, yeah, I hate it. It's not for me. It's like too much structure. You know, like I, I'm a wild dude. And then it's not until 2011. So in the last 10 years that I really said, Hey, you know what? I can see that marketing, digital marketing specifically is what's made me successful. So I got to, I got to like really hone in and fine tune those skills. So I, I just start right. Everything from SEO to lead generation, social media and all of that. So for the last 10 years, I've spent time honing in and fine tuning um, my skills as it pertains to digital marketing, but also for helping businesses grow too. That's amazing. And were you just doing this, you and your wife, or did you have a bigger team working together on this? Oh, no, that's a great question. I mean, 2011, I launched, I got lucky. I mean, you know, people talk about, hey, I work hard. I'm, it's because of my skills. I'm telling you, for me, yes, it, working hard always goes without say, having the right skills, right? You want to be able to, you know, fine tune your craft. But a lot of times it's just getting lucky too right place at right time. And I can tell you that that big client came from me a year into opening that business predict in 2011, a year into it, I get this big client from the UK. And I'm telling you, this client really put me on the map. They became a multi-million dollar account that gave me the cash flow and the upstart. Otherwise I wouldn't have, it would have taken me way longer to get to where I am today. And um, they were a client for like four years, but yes, by, by year two in this company, we were doing over a million in revenue and I had 12 people and then it went to 20 people and 30 people and 40 people. And we just kept growing this network. Um, and so, yeah, over the last 10 years, no, it started just as me and my wife. And at that time we had just had our first son in 2010. So over those years, we had four kids and she spent less and less and less time in the business. But, you know, she's always been sort of my my partner in everything that I do. Um, she Her background is communication. So when it comes to editing and writing, that's her. She That's her craft, you know. And so she's been involved in the business all throughout. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been really good over the last 10 years um, doing the digital marketing. That's amazing. And how did you find the right people to work with? Because one of the things having spoken to entrepreneurs over the years is that a lot of times what makes or breaks a successful partnership is choosing the right partner. So how did you know what people to employ and work with? What were you looking that's, for? That's such a great question. Um, I didn't, I will tell you that 2011 to 2015, those four or five years, I, I went on gut feeling, right? I just need people. I need bodies, but I can't pay big salaries. You know, I'm paying people $30,000, $40,000 a year. Um, but early on, I did bring on some big people, a couple of um, attorneys, um, people that I was paying a six-figure salary because they had knowledge that I didn't and skills that I didn't, and I knew I needed them. So I sort of had this management team of four or five people who were making a lot of money and then a bunch of other people who were sort of average. and. And that was as, as um, 
deliberate as I got in my sort of, you know, team building. I didn't, I, I was never buying into the whole culture thing. Like, you know, I, at first I was like, yeah, let's make a cool office, right. With all this fun stuff and order food. And we do like these, you know, uh, 5k runs to, for fundraisers. I was trying to build that culture, but it was never, it was never my thing. I was never a great manager because I didn't see my, I wasn't as patient as I should be. Right. I just, instead of micromanaging the first like 10 years as an entrepreneur, I used to micromanage people. Then I was like, maybe, maybe that's what you know, I shouldn't have been doing then. So my, the second part of my career here in the last 10 years, I've, I've done no micromanaging. I'm like, I trust you. If I hire you, you own it, go, go to it. So I sort of went to the other extreme and that didn't really benefit me either because I was bringing people on that weren't really qualified. Um, and then even when I was paying them well, I, I didn't have a system and it, and I'd say about 2000, late 2015, 2016, it's dawning on me that like, I've got this big team, but these are not the right fit. These people are not the right fit. So I seeked help, you know, and I talked to HR specialists. Um, I went to Toronto um, to get training from a company called Thomas uh, and better understand behavioral assessments and emotional intelligence and cognitive abilities and all those things. Um, that I had zero understanding. And, and even though I gave those assessments, I, I didn't really understand like a disc assessment. I was like, okay, sure. But when I got that uh, professional training, it really helped me create a system for building a team, which is to your question, how did I build the team? I, I didn't do a very good job in those first five years. In the last five, six years, I can own it, the good and the bad. I've definitely made some bad hires. And when I do, I try to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Um, but I spend a lot of time today making sure that the person is the right fit for us and vice versa, we're the right fit for them. So I don't sugarcoat anything. I'm like, listen, it's going to be tough. It's going to be this, that. Here's the good, the bad. I don't wear a lot of hats. That's the thing about the last five years in our companies. We hire people that are more seasoned, you know five, 10 plus years into their career. So when they come in, they, they own it. They don't need someone holding their hands. And I, and I still value the young people too. I, I hire interns all the time. I love their ideas, but they don't have the, the, the experience to come in and just do the work, especially because we're virtual. So there's nobody breathing down your neck to tell you, do this, do that. It's just like, Hey, we meet, we know quarterly goals. We know what the yearly goals are, what our five-year plan is. And if you own that client account, you own it. I'm not going to be on you. And if I hear that you're not taking care of it, we're going to have a problem. So, but yeah, having a system to bring the people in uh, um, and train them. So I never used to do a lot of training. Probably the extent of the training that I did in the first 15 years of my um uh, career as an entrepreneur was okay. You've got a week. You sit with different people. Here's a manual. Boom, boom, boom. Done. In the last five, six years, it's been more like let's create a structured training. And maybe Carmen needs a week, but Joe needs four weeks of training. Depends on how they learn. Are they audio, visual, like? So we spent a lot of time doing that. And again, everything that I'm telling you, it's not just me. It's of course, my wife, Erin, 
my team, everyone else has added to that. Yeah, absolutely. And communication is so important in terms of getting things done remotely. And I kind of want to talk to you about remote working because you got on that bandwagon well before COVID. What made you decide to go remote and how do you think having it started pre-COVID helped you to make a smooth transition to the situation we're now finding ourselves in? Yeah, for me it was when my daughter uh, was born in 2014, I, I felt like I was spending, not I felt, I was spending 10, 12, 15 hours a day at the office with the team, right? And just building it. And I was traveling a lot. I was traveling probably 50, 60 days out of the year, going to conferences around the world. And I thought, well, you know, I'm missing out on a lot with her. And it really dawned on me. I was like, this is not going to be good for me. That's partly why I wanted to be an entrepreneur so I could have more time. But that's the truth that every entrepreneur finds out is that no, actually you're going to have less time. <laughs> so, but I, I was finding that like, look, I'm not being able to connect with her. She's a little baby. And, and my wife would say, no, it's not that, you know, I'm like, no, but my son who was already a couple years old. He was connecting with me. I'm like, I think it's because I'm not spending as much time with her. And I really realized that in the first six months of her life. Right. So I start to make that change and, and go, you know what? Eventually, I'd like to have a company that I can work from home remotely. I just don't see that I could do it now. First of all, I was in a lease. We had signed like a five, six year lease, whatever it was at the office. And I'm like, once we're done with that lease, then I'm going to transition. And that happened in 2015 to 16. Little by little, we transition everyone. Um, and that was my reasoning was so I could spend more time with them because I, I have this digital marketing business that is 24 seven. Think about e-commerce clients, their business 24 seven. That means we have to be doing the marketing for them 24 seven. So it doesn't really matter when I'm at the office because our business is a 24 seven business. So we make that transition. And once I made that transition, it, it, it took a little bit of getting used to, I still had an office all throughout up until last year, because I found that working from home with kids was very, very challenging. Um, and so I enjoyed the office. And so mainly it was the management team that would come into the office. We had an office in Miami, one in Fort Lauderdale and one in, um, Palm beach County. So we'd still come into the office from time to time, but we were really, I mean, I would say 2016 all the way through when COVID hits us, I mean, we were perfecting what tools are we using, like management tools for, for project management. We're using Basecamp, we're using Asana, right? We're using CRMs like Zoho and all the software that and tools that we use for clients, we're using for ourselves and to be able to manage everything remotely. Zoom, I mean, we were using Zoom and Skype and all of that years ago. So when it hit us in, in March, really February, March of last year, the transition was, I would say, not so hard. Um, and again, I, it wasn't by design at all. The why, I just explained to you what the why was, but I didn't know that, you know, this would would really help us. Because I think had we been in an office situation like I was in the first five years of the company, um, it would have been really difficult in a lot of different ways, you know. Definitely.
you've also done another thing that's really difficult. You and your wife decided to homeschool your children as well as work from home. So tell us what that was like and how, how, how yeah, has it so, been about COVID? Yeah, so that required a lot of uh, alcohol. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Well, I, yeah, some, but no, when we, we took, took up that challenge was really to leave South Florida. We had been in South Florida for, um, 16, 16 years in South Florida. And, you know, South Florida has grown to nearly 7 million people. I last count it's like six, six and a half million people in a very small area that is flat. So there's only, the only way that you can grow is up. So you're seeing these high rises, traffic is crazy. Um, and it just feels like a big city, which is nice, offers a lot of great things culturally, right? We go to the book fair, we go to Miami, we do all these great things, but you're spending so much time on the road. We were spending so much time on the road, taking the kids to school to do this, you know, so little league soccer, dance, and we're just feeling stressed at the time in 2018. Yeah, about 18. And we said, you know what, we got to make a change. What are we going to do? Why don't we move up the coast a little bit? Only about a two hour drive uh, where I'm just outside of Orlando now where it's 10% the population. So you definitely don't feel crowded. And, but we're only an hour away from Orlando. So we've got all the amenities there or two hours from South Florida. And so we decided like, Hey, if we move up here, instead of trying new schools, why don't we try homeschool? We wanted more control of our time. Why don't we do that? So we embarked on that journey. And the first year was sort of like, let's build our own curriculum. So then we used platforms like Khan Academy and a few other tools, but we registered with the state and the county. And it was relatively easy, simple to do. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough that first year trying to get like, okay, how do I do? Are, am I going to do math? Are you going to do science? And my strengths are math and science and my wife's are language arts and social studies. So it worked out perfect. I said, all right, so you do that. I'm going to do this. We got to get a house that is big enough to have an actual classroom. All right. So the, the house that we uh, bought up here, it used to be a, a, like a home theater in this one big room upstairs. We turned it into a classroom, which at some point I'll turn it back into a theater for sure. Um, but yeah, so we started with that and, and we said, Hey, you know what, what if we buy an RV? Cause then we can go on field trips all the time with the kids. You know, we love to travel. We love to be in the car. The kids do too. And so we did that as a part of like the homeschool was like, Hey, cause they got to get out and there's homeschool groups, by the way, that they're in. So it's people ask me often like, Oh, what about the social aspect? I'm like, well, let me, let me explain to you. Like my, my family from Brazil, most of them grew up in a farm. Uh, they didn't see any other human beings for the first like 20 years of their life because they were in a farm. And prior to that, before organized education, how do you think people socialized in the 1800s, in the 1700s, in Roman times? People have always socialized. So I'm not saying that you it's not good to have organized education and systems. But I think when people push on me to talk about, oh, what are your kids going to do socially? I'm like, come to my house and see if you can get a word in. These kids are as social as you would want them to be. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, look, if, if a child's an introvert or an extrovert, I have nothing really to do with it. You're born that way. 
either you like to talk or you don't like to talk, that sort of a thing. Um, and going to school or not going to school doesn't necessarily make you talk more or less. No, it could actually make you feel worse because if you're an introvert in a group of kids that can mingle well and you see that you're the odd man out, that's going to leave you feeling odd. And if you're an extrovert and you're a social butterfly, blah, 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 you're going to do that no matter what. And so for us, it worked out. So doing the RV, doing the field trips, the homeschool groups, they do like PE, art. We, and our goal was in year one, was just let's see if we like it. Let's see if they thrive. Once we saw that they thrive, then we liked it, but we were still not like super confident about it. We were like, okay, so if we're going to continue though, we got to make sure that the education that we can give them is better than the one that we could get out there for them. Yeah. And then two more reasons why we were on this track to do homeschool. I'm sure you remember when Parkland happened a few years ago, the shooting that was right by us about 15 miles from where we lived. And it was scary, right? All these school shootings happening here. And I mean, in the U S people here from around the world and you're going, wow, you know? So the question is, are your kids safe? And for us, we felt like, no, they're not safe. And that's life. I get it. But for us, I thought we built this business. It's virtual and we have the luxury to do the homeschool. Like most people don't. And I realize that. Okay. But we do. And I'm like, if, if we don't give it a try, then we won't know. And then I'll know that I'll feel like it's a little bit safer with them next to us all the time. But then there's the educational piece of it. Can we offer a better education than we can find out there? Um, and the answer was yes, over time. So now our finishing our third year, we've come to create sort of a hybrid approach where it's, we use part of the curriculum from the state. And then we have other platforms that we use and projects that we do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, my day start, I, I get up at five, I work on the business until about eight, work, you know, do breakfast, then get into school. And then I'm usually with the kids in school from eight to about 10 or 11. And then my wife's with them probably until about noon. So their school day is usually four hours. And then we spend a ton of time outside doing, you know, just being outside with nature and, and stuff like that. And then I go to it. And then I spend probably the next eight hours in the business by four o'clock, five o'clock, I'm usually done unless I have calls and then, you know, spend more time with them and it works for us. And sometimes I hear people say, Oh my God, that's crazy. Like you're working 24 seven from home and you're, you know, doing this homeschool thing with the cool, like, aren't you going crazy? And I'm like, no, because we found our rhythm. Like we, I mean, it didn't, of course it didn't come without challenges. And sometimes like trying to pull my hair and going, is it five o'clock somewhere? Cause I got to have a drink. Of course not. I back to your point about Instagram, right? It's not, it's not all pretty, right? If you spent a day here, you'd be like, Whoa, you guys are a little crazy. So no, it's not perfect, but we found that it works for us, you know, and I, and definitely we're lucky. We're lucky. We're blessed, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and I, that yeah looking back at my journey with my team and and clients definitely clients too i mean i i always am very thankful 
you know, to have had the clients that I've had, the opportunities that I've had um, over the last 10 years to get us to where we are today. Absolutely. And I think it's exactly as you said, it's about finding your rhythm, be it in work, in life, in love. Everybody has their challenges. Everybody has their preferences. We all have different opportunities. We all have different psychologies and different gifts. So it really is about finding your rhythm and the things that work for you. And it seems like you're absolutely kicking ass. So congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. What advice would you give to someone who has immigrated and is thinking about going the entrepreneurial route? Yeah, I think, you know, today with the internet, there's lots of opportunities, but on the same token, it's not always what it seems. I actually just read a story this morning about this kid, Ryan, on YouTube, who's nine years old. Um, and last year, they, him and his family, his mom and dad, but he is the star of the show. He's a YouTuber. Um, they brought in $30 million. And what this kid does is he, he on camera on YouTube, he's got something like 60 million subscribers. He opens gifts and he uh, unboxes them and woohoo, it's a gift. And, um, and then he does crafts online. Now, it, listen, I'm not knocking on him. I'm sure there's value. I'm sure it's entertaining to the 60 million subscribers. And like you said, it's to each their own, right? I find my rhythm, you find your rhythm and that works for them. But I think that sometimes for be it immigrants or just Americans. I mean, we're looking today online and there's all these beautiful stories of how easy it is, Look how easy it is to be a YouTuber an Instagrammer, an influencer, TikTok. Ba, 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 ba. It's not that easy. You know, those are one in a million. And then there's another like 999,000 who failed, lost all their money and are sitting crying because it's not that way. So I think that, you know, for immigrants who come here uh, and I've seen this specifically with, you know, friends that have come from Brazil who maybe had a profession there and then come here and they have to work like extra hard. They, they can't get used to it because in America, it's a little bit different. It is different culture than even in Europe. You know, people are not thinking of vacation seven days a week. People are not thinking of going to the beach. Like people here are like grinding and, you know, you could say that's good or bad. Doesn't matter. We changed our lives so that we wouldn't live the same rhythm of, of the, the, the populace here. Right. Because we found that that didn't work for us either. Um, but it takes time to get there, right? Took me definitely over two decades to get to where we are. So if you're an immigrant coming here, you know, look, first and foremost, learn the language. That's like number one. And I get it. If you're an adult, you're coming with kids, like, where are you going to find the time? If you're already working two, three jobs, where are you going to find the time? But you can, if you want to, you can, the language will definitely empower you and get people to respect you. So that's number one, the language. Number two, Find a network of people. Network for me has been tremendous because I've got such a long list of people I can thank in different circles in the community. I give, I give back a lot. I volunteer and through those come opportunities and connections. So I feel like you definitely have to find a community of people and network um, so that when you need something, you have people who can trust you, 
who trust you and say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to give you a hand because you're definitely not going to do it on your own unless you're independently wealthy. You come here as an immigrant. Okay, fine. I guess you can make it anywhere. But if you're like most of us who came from nothing, listen, the language is going to be number one, your network. And if at all possible, make a plan to get some education. It doesn't have to be a college degree. It could be maybe something technical. Maybe you apprentice for somewhere, someone, but be realistic about your journey, your goals. What are you, what are you dreaming about? You know, um, because it's going to take time. And, and so I think that in entrepreneurship, most entrepreneurs I, I meet are like me. They're not patient. Like we, we just want to see it happen fast. Like I see a, a shiny object and I'm like, oh, great. And you know, like I could walk from here to the car and launch another business on a daily basis. That's just my mind goes that way. But then I have to be like, Alex, calm down, focus on what's working, focus on what's to work. Don't take time away from paying clients to go do a, a pretty podcast. The podcast is very deliberate in what I'm trying to do. I'm educating people, but there are other things that I've done throughout time that I was just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if it worked. Um, so look, if you're coming here, you're an immigrant, again, language, work hard, you know, and, and assimilate into the, the society that you're in. That's like super important. And if I, if I moved somewhere else, I would expect that I would do the same, you know? So I came from South Florida, like I told you, worked 16 years, they're very liberal area of Florida, very blue Democrat area. So people are very open-minded, accepting all of that place where I moved to three years ago here in close to central Florida, very red, very Republican, right? I understand that. So I'm going to be sensitive. I'm not going to put a lawn sign, uh, you know, for Joe Biden or something like that. I have to understand. So when in Rome, you, you do sort of have to find, right, a, a, um, a balance between the two, you know, uh, and, and I, like I said, I know from friends and family who have come here oftentimes said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to learn the language. I'm, you know, and I'm only going to play my music, eat my food, do my thing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not saying that you have to become 100% Americanized, but you do have to adapt somewhat. Otherwise people are going to go, Hey, go back to your country. And we hear that no matter where we are in the world. So I, I try to find a balance of both, you know, yeah, that's a, that's some really, really great advice. Like, I know, from my own family, my grandpa never, ever learned English. Like, he could make me say three words because he worked as a janitor. His whole community was Portuguese. So he had, he had no incentive, really, to learn the language, and he had no career aspirations. He went to America with his wife, five children. He's just like, you know, I'm just going to put my head down, do different odd jobs, provide for them so they can be American and live the American dream. And so, yeah, he kept he kept his life small and simple. But I think you do miss out a lot on the culture and what your experience can be when you cut yourself off linguistically, because that's your window to the country and the culture and the people that you live with. So that's super important. Um, Alex, where can people find your podcast and more on you? Sure. Um, the podcast, you can go to the website. It's dadpreneur.co. Um, or you can find it on our company website, predict.io. Um, and I'm everywhere. I don't spend a lot of time personally on social media. 
it's ironic because I do that for clients. Um, and maybe that's why. So I spend so much time building brands and, and generating leads for clients on social that I spend very little personally, but that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast. So you can definitely connect with me there or I'm on LinkedIn more often than not. That is perfect. Alex, thank you so much for your time and sharing a little bit of your journey with us today. And I'll put the link to all of uh, Alex's LinkedIn and his podcast in the show notes. And until the next journey, ciao.